Jill. My name is Paul Fowler. I serve as our Lake Forest campus pastor here at Christ Church, and I've been excited to get to speak with you about Daniel chapter 4 and 5 today. Has anybody ever imagined what it would be like if people treated real life like they did social media? Like if people had the conversations they do on social media in real life. So for example, let's say when you walked in here today and that typical church greeting of, hello, how are you, right? And you expect the standard, oh, I'm good, how are you? But instead, this person pulls out a photo and says, you see this? This is food. I was at a restaurant this weekend. They had this food. I ordered this food. I ate this food. Do you like this food? Want to share it with your friends? It's probably the last time you're going to talk to that person, right? It's kind of weird. We don't do this, but it's okay on social media. Or imagine you're walking down the street, beautiful morning. Your neighbor comes out. He's been on vacation for a few weeks, and he says, here's a few hundred pictures of me on vacation. Do you want to look at them? Here's me, my sandy toes. Here's me walking around. Here's just me sleeping. Here's me eating food. You like it? Want to share it with your friends? We don't talk like this in real life because it's, it's annoying, it's aggressive, it's too much time, it's kind of braggy, right? We know better to do this, but on social media, it's okay. I mean, imagine what the lobby would look like if we treated this place like we did on social media. You'd go out there and someone's like, here's my kid, look, they drew this picture, you like it? Want to share it? No, here, here's me and my sister, we're making cute faces, huh? You like our outfits? Is this good? Like it, share it. There'd be a whole group of young people out there swinging their arms around, saying they're dancing. It'd be crazy. Some guy comes up to you and says, hey, can you tell Jim I'm good at my job? I just need you to endorse me. Not looking for work, just tell him I'm good. Right? This is how we act on social media, but we know better in real life. It, it's awkward, it's braggy, and perhaps you don't even have social media, so you have no clue what I'm talking about. But I think we all can agree that you can't go anywhere these days without someone pulling out their phone. Got to get a picture. Got to take a video. You know, concerts full of people watching concerts through their phone. You know, people, I was uh, walking by a flooded street yesterday. I counted 10 people taking pictures of the flooded street. I saw people on social media posting about the flooded street that they saw. What is it that has changed about the world that we got to take the picture? We got to show that we were there, that we were doing something. Part of me thinks this is what's happening is when we're out, we're thinking about the people that are in. We're like, oh, we're doing something fun. We're doing something exciting. I want everybody to know this is the great thing that I'm getting to do. So they got to post on social media. They got to take a picture. But when you're in, rather than enjoying your life, maybe just reading a book, taking a nap, right? No, you got to be looking at the people that are out. Got to like it. You got to share it. Got to be a part of it. What's so fascinating about this is how has the world changed so much that this is our existence? This is how we live. What is different? What's interesting is social scientists would say that kind of a byproduct of this behavior is the levels of narcissism, or we can call it pride, are statistically verifiably on the rise. On the rise. Narcissism being this, this sense of entitlement, look at me and look what I can do and look what I have, or also narcissism, it's a, it's a lack of empathy. Who cares if I post this? Who cares if I say I get to do this or that? So the question we ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to live in a world where pride is good? Where, where narcissism isn't increasing. And what's so fascinating is the levels of anxiety that people have in our culture that they are experiencing. Where is this coming from? If we're the people that get to do all these fun and exciting things and it looks like we're all having a great time, why are people so broken? Why are they so alone? Why are they hurting? So what does it mean for us to live faithfully in a world that seems like it has drastically changed? 
That's why we've been looking at the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4 if you want to turn there in your Bibles today. And what we're talking about is this theme of living in a new world. And part of the reason why we chose this theme is over the last three years of a pandemic, the last five years of crazy political turmoil yet again, the last 10 years of changes on social issues back and forth, whatever it may be, you might feel like you're living in a new world. Like without even having to go anywhere, things have changed. Things are different. And how do we live as Christians to be faithful in this world? In the book of Daniel, they were exiles. They were taken from their land by King Nebuchadnezzar. They were forced to walk thousands of miles. Daniel's put into service. They had real hardship to get into a new world. We're not like that. We didn't have that hardship like they did. But for us, that feeling of things are different now. How do I live? What does it mean to be a Christian? How do I walk forward in this life? And one of those things that we have to consider about is the impact or what it means for us to be in a world that lives where pride is okay and narcissism is growing. How are we those that walk faithfully? So perhaps you could say to study this today as we look at Daniel chapter 4, it's page 877 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to grab one there and look at it with me, is maybe we should learn from someone really humble, right? Wouldn't that be a good idea? If we're going to talk about pride, let's think about humility. So maybe we could look at Daniel. He's a great guy, seems to be working well. Nebuchadnezzar is crazy, throwing people in fires. Last week we talked about that. But actually what's shocking about Daniel chapter four, it's not written by Daniel. It's part of Daniel's book, but it's actually written by King Nebuchadnezzar. The guy who made an idol, had people worship him. The guy who, yes, was throwing people in the fire, but they were spared because of God's power. That's the person that writes Daniel chapter four. What's interesting for us is that doesn't carry as much weight as it did for the people of Israel at that time. For you to best kind of grasp what it would mean for King Nebuchadnezzar to be writing part of the Bible is imagine the person you most dislike politically. And I'm not talking about the person down the street or on social media that bothers you. I'm talking about the person in the office that you would most disagree with. And if I were to say to you, you know what? That person that you most dislike, they're going to come talk about God today. Would you stay? My guess is no. No one wants to hear from that person that we most dislike. That's what it felt like for the people of Israel. Wait, who is talking about God? He's ruined our country. He's ruined our place. Why do we want to hear from King Nebuchadnezzar? And he has a great story to tell us about pride and how God is the most high. So I'm going to go ahead and walk through our passage if you're in Daniel chapter 4. And kids, if you have those little comic books that are in your bags, you should pull this out. This is great. It actually follows the scripture really well. And we're going to look at this together. And what Daniel says most often in Daniel, or what Nebuchadnezzar says most often in Daniel chapter 4 is that God is the most high God. We're going to start here looking at verse 11. So King Nebuchadnezzar is talking to us and he has this dream and he has a dream about a tree. Kids, you see that in the book, the picture of the tree. And this tree was large and strong and it grew even stronger till it touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and all the beasts of the field found shelter in it. See the picture of the little cows in your comic book there? And the birds of the air lived in its branches. But here's what happens next in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Look at verse 14. This angel comes down, this holy one, this messenger, and says, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But... You see this picture of a stump in the comic book there. But let the stump remain and bind it with iron and bronze. Then it seems like this holy one in this dream starts talking directly to Nebuchadnezzar. 
in verse, the end of verse 15, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live among the animals, among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passed by. And this decision is announced. The reason that this is happening in the dream we see in verse 17, so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. What's so interesting is what comes next, and he sets over them, not the best, not the brightest, not the most amazing, he sets over them the lowliest of men. That's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now what happens next is no one can figure out the dream in a typical fashion, we need Daniel to come and interpret the dream for us. So here's what Daniel says, starting in verse 22. He says, you king, you are that tree. You become great and strong. You've stretched over the whole entire earth. Your greatness reaches the sky but you also saw that messenger come down. So King, you are gonna be cut down, but the stump will remain. You are that stump. And this is what the king needs to understand. You're gonna be driven away, verse 25, from the people. You're gonna live with the wild animals. You're gonna eat grass like a cattle, be drenched seven times until you acknowledge, a repeated phrase most often here, that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And this is Telly acknowledges that the kingdom of heaven rules. So here's what Daniel does next. He's going to give a little bit of advice after the interpretation. And you see this in verse 27. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. You would think after that dream that maybe King Nebuchadnezzar would drastically change his ways. But you'll see in the comic book there, kids, we see here 12 months later, verse 30, he gets up on top of his palace And he says to himself, is this not the great Babylon I've built as the royal residence? By my mighty power for the glory of my majesty, verse 31, and while the words on his lips, the messenger comes down, says the tree is going to be cut down until he acknowledges that God is the most high. Kids, you see this in the book, his hair grows out, the rain is drenching his head as his nails grow long, right? Seven times, probably seven years that he existed in the wilderness. But verse 34, at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes towards heaven, his sanity was restored, and he did what? He praises the Most High. Look what he has to say to him at the end of verse 34. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven. And the peoples of earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So his sanity is restored, and the final words that he gives us in verse 37 are, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, the main problem of King Nebuchadnezzar, he is able to humble. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and when you're, ever, you're studying the Bible, you see a phrase that is repeated and repeated and repeated, right? Most high, most high, most high. Nebuchadnezzar wants you to get, Daniel wants you to see that God is the most high God. So as we're living in a world where, where we are seeing increasing levels of narcissism and it's okay to be proud, we have to understand that God is the most high God. But my assumption is that if I were to do a survey of all of us here today, and I were to say, all right, we're going to rate God from pretty good to most high. 99% of us are going to say, oh, yeah, I know the answer to this one. Most high, you know, we got the right answer, right? So probably most of us would not have any disagreement with this. The other 1%, maybe you're saying, well, I'm not sure if God exists. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Um, 
glad you're engaging with us, but what we're considering, if, if God is who he said he is, and if the Bible is his word, Nebuchadnezzar would want you to know, as it relates to pride, as it relates to living in, in this world, that God is the most high God. But what does that mean for us if we already believe it? Well, I think what's most helpful for us is we consider what it means, and I have two points today, about God as the most high God. It's not just how we think, because Daniel's advice in verse 27 is not just, hey, every morning wake up and say God is the most high, and then you're not going to have a problem with this at all. No, what he says, look at verse 27 with me. Two things that are important here. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. So we acknowledge the Most High God, first point, by doing what is right. It's not just a way of thinking, it has to be a way that we live. How do we live in a new world? We acknowledge that God is the Most High by doing what is right. What I think is helpful is if you look at verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says this, I exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right. It's interesting on the language there. He's not saying, oh, God is just so perfect. He does everything right. He's so good. No, everything he does is right. So there's a bit of nuance in there. What I'm trying to get at is if we think about God is the most high, what we can't do is think that somehow morality exists out there in the universe. Like there is right and there is wrong and God just always does the right things. He never does the wrong things. Actually, what we have to think of is God is the most high, and because God exists, then there is morality. God is right. He doesn't just do what is right. Everything he does is the right things to do. That's why right and wrong exists, because he said it exists, because he made it into being. And so the problem is, in our pride, or living in a world where we celebrate we are the decider, is if we view that God has an opinion on right and wrong, and we have a competing opinion— and we'll just see which one is right and who wins the end, that's pride. Rather than saying God is the most high and what he says to do is the right thing to do. But how do we know what is right? Well, that's the good news about the word that he's given us. He's told us what's right. He speaks to us what is right. But it's easy even as Christians, when we believe, yes, I believe that God is most high and I believe that his word tells me what to do, it's easy to kind of run on autopilot. And just as, as we parent or as we live in the world or as we deal with others, just think, oh, this is probably a good way to do it or how I should do these things, right? The world would say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, get even. We just studied the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago. No, it's about loving your enemy, about serving those. The world would say when someone hurts you, you, you cancel them, you get rid of them. No, God says we forgive and we forgive and we forgive Think about raising our kids. Maybe this is the right thing. Or I'll try this. Or how about I do this? Where God's word says, train up a child in the way he should go. He will not depart from it. We have to come back to God's word if we want to know the right way to do things. And even better than that, what's so beautiful about the gospel is that, yes, Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he's up in heaven and he says, look, I'm going to send the helper to come. And he's going to tell you what to do is right. Now, how often? As we live in this world and we think about how to engage with all the things that are going on, do we stop and say, okay, Holy Spirit, how do I act today? How do I respond today? How do I move forward with what's going on? We acknowledge that God is the most high when we do what is right. And what is right is found in God's word. What is right is what his spirit guides us and directs us. It's easy to fall in that rut of thinking we know right. 
But we have to live in a way that God is the most high. What he does is right. He created right. The second point today is also from verse 27. In the second part there, he says, renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. So the second point is this, that we acknowledge that God is the most high when we are kind to the oppressed. What's interesting that I think helps us understand this is if you look at what King Nebuchadnezzar says when he is kind of exemplifying his pride, maybe it's just me, but I think it doesn't really seem that terrible. Look at verse 30 when he says, is this not the great Babylon that I built as my royal residence? I mean, this is true. He was King Nebuchadnezzar. He took over the world at that time. And then he says, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty that I have created all this. I think that's what's kind of so insidious about pride is which of us have not said, oh, you know what, I think I'm doing a pretty good job in life. We look at our homes or what we have or our jobs or our careers or our kids or our marriage or whatever it might be, and it's easy to have that small voice in our our head that says, I think I'm doing pretty good. Have I not worked hard to deserve this? It's easy to believe in our pride that this is what we have. But you see, what Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand, and we don't have time to really jump into this today, is if you go all the way back to Jeremiah 27, the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 27, 50 years before all this was even happening, look, I'm about to make King Nebuchadnezzar great. I'm going to give him power. You guys are messing it up here in Israel. I've got to punish you. I've got to send you over there, and I'm going to make him a great king. I'm going to give him all power, and he's going to protect you until you get sent back into the land. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought he built this as his great residence. He thought he was just powerful and strong and smart and had done this all on his own, not realizing this was God's plan all along. Do we do that with our own thoughts, how we've been created, the opportunities we have, whatever we've done in life to say to ourselves, look what I've done, not realizing that God has gifted you. He has skilled you. He's given you opportunities. He has blessed you. And so to be prideful in this world, and this is okay what most people do, is they say, look what I've done and look what I've accomplished and this is for me. I didn't make those bad decisions. That's what you did. Or I didn't start a a war in that place or I didn't take those people's things. But that's prideful. It is our job. That's the advice that given to King Nebuchadnezzar that we acknowledge the Most High when we are kind to the oppressed. You see, in Matthew 25, Jesus does this parable of the sheep and the goats, and the sheep are the one that are going to heaven, and the goats say, why not us? What did we miss? What did we get wrong? And Jesus said, I was hungry, and you fed me, or you didn't feed me. I was, I was thirsty, you didn't give me water. I was a stranger, I was an alien, you didn't invite me in. I was sick, you didn't help me, and I was in prison, you didn't visit me. These are all tangible things that God has empowered us to do. He has skilled you, he has gifted you, he has created you, he has blessed you. Not that you sit back and say, look what I've done, look what I get, but that we are helping and serving others. I'm always so encouraged by so many ministries here at Christ Church, like Renew, we were just talking about that. Knowing a few of the people that work there and how they've worked in the industry for so many years and they say, hey, I have something to give, I have something to offer. God has skilled me and gifted me and now we're building homes and we're sending them off to people that are are in need. It's a great opportunity. I think about the cars ministry that is here. There's a guy named Gary that runs it and he would say, I'm not a car guy, I I don't do those things. But they take cars, they sell them, and they help fix other people's cars. You see, 
God has given you time. He has given you resources. He has gifted you and skilled you in a way, not that you say, hey, this is all for me. You can use it to help and serve others. That's how we avoid pride. So we acknowledge that God is the most high when we are doing what is right. And what's right is found in God's word. We acknowledge that God is the most high when we are kind to the oppressed, when we're helping and loving and serving others. What's so interesting about our passage today is we're looking at Daniel chapter 4 and 5. Don't worry, I'm not going to go another 20 minutes. Um, It's a story that many of us know. Uh, The idiom, the writing on the wall is is what comes from here. And it's King Belshazzar, who is either the son or the grandson, depending historically how you look at this, of Nebuchadnezzar. And so what happens is there's this writing on the wall that says this message. And what I find so interesting about how we kind of use writing on the wall is it seems like it's just this misfortune that's kind of coming at someone. Uh, rather than the writing on the wall usually is, I don't think you're getting the point. You're not doing the right things. And, and this is kind of your fault. I'm trying to get through to you. And that's exactly what happens to Belshazzar. He's having this great feast celebrating with a thousand of his nobles. Look how amazing I am. In fact, he says, I'm even better than Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to take the stuff he took and I'm going to use God's temple utensils and I'm going to celebrate and have a party with them. But the writing on the wall shows up. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. No one knows what it means. But Daniel knows what it means. He comes and he says, mene, mene, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. When God says something twice, that means it's certain, right? There was no repentance clause that within 24 hours, if he had, you know, repented, he'd be out of it. No, time's up. Tekel means he was weighed on the scales of life. He was found wanting, meaning his, his bad works far outweighed the good things he had done in life. And parson or peres means that your kingdom has been divided and gives, given to the Medes and the Persians. And it suddenly, that night, it is taken all away from Belshazzar. And Daniel says to him, you didn't learn the lesson from Nebuchadnezzar. You saw firsthand, we saw firsthand, what pride can do to someone. And it's not just how we think, it's how we live. What I think is helpful about that story is, if you think about yourself, if you were weighed on the scales of life, how would you end up? Have you done enough good? The reality is that we're all weighed and found wanting. None of us are good enough. I'm not good enough, you're not good enough, we're not good enough. But what's so amazing about God's mercy on us as he said, I got this. And his grace far outweighs any of the bad things we've ever done and all the bad things we will ever do. That's why we believe in him. That's what's so amazing when we look at the gospel and we think, how do we move away from pride? We can look to Jesus. Philippians talks about how he had everything in heaven. He didn't need anything. But you know what God is most proud of? Who he most loves? It's us. That's what what God is most proud of. He's proud of you. He loves you. He thought it was better for him to leave and come down here to be with us than to sit in heaven. And what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. He died on the cross in our place. A perfect example of humility. A demonstration of his love. So if he can do that for us, can we not say, okay, God, if, you, if you're going to die on the cross for me and you love me this much, can I not do it your way? If you sent your Holy Spirit to help me, okay, Holy Spirit, I need your help. How do I move forward? How do I overcome things with my children or in my marriage or at work or whatever it may be? And we think about all the ways that he has loved and served us. Do we not consider 
because of what he's done for us when we go in turn and love and serve others that are in need. The world has changed. It's, it's a different place. But the truth of God's love remains. So I would encourage you today, take time to think about how you can overcome your pride by looking at God's word. How you can move beyond pride of what I have and it's for me and move to a place where I must, needs, love, and serve others. Because that's exactly what Jesus has already done for us. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are most satisfied and most proud of us, your creation. We are so thankful for what Jesus has done on the cross in our place. That perfect example of humility and love. Help us today as we go from here to acknowledge your greatness, not just in how we think, but how we live our everyday lives. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.